Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA degree, and a three-year certificate program focus on experimental learning and sustained studio courses. Both programs invite students to focus on painting or sculpture, with drawing as an integral foundation for all creative production. Each semester begins with a two-week drawing or sculpture marathon to generate momentum and expand one's range of strategies for future studio work. Since its inception, the New York Studio School has emphasized rigorous learning through direct experience. Learn about scholarship opportunities, schedule a tour, and ask questions by emailing info at nyss.com. The school welcomes applications for fall 2020, full-time study through nyss.org. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Dove Bradshaw is an artist born in New York in 1949. She pioneered the use of indeterminacy in 1969 by enlisting the unpredictable effects of time, weather, erosion, and indoor and outdoor atmosphere conditions on natural, chemical, and manufactured materials. She's created chemical paintings that change with the atmosphere, indoor erosion sculptures of salt, and outdoor stone sculptures that weather. She's worked with crystals that receive radio transmissions from local shortwave and weather stations, along with reception of radio telescope signals from Jupiter. In 1975, she was awarded the NEA grant. In 1985, the Paula Krasner Award. In 2003, a Furthermore grant. In 2006, the National Science Foundation for Artists grant. And her work has been featured and shown regularly in the United States, Europe, South America, Japan, and South Korea, appearing in the 6th Guangzhou Biennial. She's represented in the permanent collections of many major museums, including the Met, the Museum of Modern Art, the National Gallery of Washington, the Art Institute of Chicago, the British Museum, the Centre Pompidou in Paris, and the Marble Palace Russian State Museum in St. Petersburg. She also is in Marcel Duchamp, The Art of the Possible, a new movie out March 10th, which is written and directed by Matthew Taylor and features Ed Ruscha, Michel Gondry, Calvin Tompkins, and others. I visited Dove in her home studio on the Upper West Side of Manhattan for a talk about her days growing up in Manhattan, sourcing materials from every continent, her friendship with John Cage, Cole Porter music, and much more. Here's our conversation. And they asked me to give a talk there, and, and you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's like my hero, and the Guggenheim. Yeah. I love the museum and the history, and it just means so much. I saw the building being built. That's amazing. I was nine when it was going up, and I lived down the block. Really? Several blocks away, but on 88th. And you saw that thing Yeah, happen. the spaceship growing. It must on, have been like... On Fifth Avenue, because my father and I, we were interested in architecture. Yeah. 
Well, now what's more interesting than like that UFO getting yeah, <laughs> landing exactly. on? And, uh, and you, we've shown in it. So uh, William Anastasi is my partner of yeah. 42 years. Then we married and now husband. And we showed there in 2009 in a, an exhibition called American Artists Contemplate Asia. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, 18, 19, uh, wait, 1889 to 1989. Yeah. So, so I showed a level, which is kind of amusing, because um, when I was... 20, I woke up one morning thinking, why couldn't you put uh, water inside a bulb Mm -hmm. that would normally have sand? And then, just one second. Don't think about it, Mr. (laughs) Sasha. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And so uh, that was a cat who likes to scratch a rug, which we're showing off to (laughs) Brian here. And uh, pretty soon we'll have to fold it up. It's too tempting. For this Abyssinian. <laughs> anyway, uh, so when I was 20, I woke up with the idea that I could put water inside and instead of sand for a, a timer. And so I was living in uh, Cambridge going to art school, Boston Museum School. Mm-hmm. And I bicycled over to MIT to the lab there. It was a Saturday to buy two test tubes that would I could glue together. Yeah. And uh, the lab technician said know that, that that wouldn't work uh, and I was disappointed of course but he spent the next six hours with me inventing something that did work and uh, that's what pretty it, cool it was amazing because and he had why it took so long was the experimentation yeah uh, he did all of course all the invention of it just uh, but I wanted a, a size of a you know your fist uh, smaller than a, you know a child's fist mm-hmm. for the globes, and then a narrow neck, and so we put water in, didn't flow. Then he put a equalizing uh, tube on the side to equalize the pressure, mm-hmm. and narrow tube didn't didn't uh, flow. Uh, then he put acetone in it for lower viscosity, thinner, and it still didn't flow. And uh, so once he put that in, he had to use liquid nitrogen so that it wouldn't explode once he opens the flame, you know, with the hand-blown bulbs. And he was the scientific glassblower for the MIT labs, as well as minding the store. And uh, so anything that the scientists thought of, he would have to uh, make. Right. And so then, since it didn't flow... Uh, he d- decided to draw off a vacuum. So he put it in the liquid nitrogen. If you do that, he w- he was saying that if you put a... Do you remember the 007 film where there was a rose and they've captured the 007 and they dip the rose in oh, liquid right. nitrogen, bang yeah. it against the wall and it shatters, shatters and they say, right. this is what we'll do with you. Oh, what was that? Which one was that? I don't remember which one, I, but I there was scene, the scene. Yeah, yeah. That you don't forget. Right. And so... Um, he drew off the vacuum and it worked oh, finally nice. it worked it's a partial vacuum and then it beat so i have it here but at any rate it uh beats as it goes down both the center column and the valve on the side so this was the piece that was in the guggenheim show. it was in the guggenheim and what was amusing was it was shown as a level and of course it's bedeviled sculptors forever to be showing on a curved rotunda that's sloped. <laughs> right. 
it kind of defies a lot of sculptural ideas. How did that tie into the East? Oh, because it was interesting because it was a level and a timer or a clock yeah. without uh, any measurement. So it was uh, free. I had originally built an arm- armature for it, yeah, but uh, abandoned that to being more abstract. And there were no markings. So even as a level, it was not marked. Right. And so it was kind of this Eastern mysticism. So Alexandra Monroe, who was the curator, uh, kind of defying our Western idea of measurement. So kind of, well, aesthetically, I guess, or like the sort of removal of the data part of it, right? Right. Brought yeah, the, it to the, something the more. The hard measurement of it. Yeah. And when you think, say, Marcel Duchamp had kicked off the last century with the three, or very early on, the three standard stoppages, which were, uh, as you know, uh, meters that were curved. He dropped string to create the curves. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Bill uh, and John Cage once experimented dropping uh, thread, and they said, oh, there was no way it could get in these gentle curves, that it must have been manipulated. And then I told them about, well, maybe he used... uh, silk thread that they use for stringing beads because then when you drop it it has a smooth curve to it at any rate Duchamp had done that years before and I I used to know how many years I think it was a dozen years before Heisinger principle that you could not measure uh, anything that you attempted to measure uh was it uh, would change and was impossible by the mere measurement of it, mm-hmm. and that was encapsulated in that idea of Duchamp's. Yeah, wow, that's which was quite brilliant when you think of artists who anticipate science and uh, scientific discoveries. And I've gone to a number of clock museums, or t- you know, and I haven't seen anything like my timer, which is both uh, time and space. So it does, you know, vertically it's a a timer, but horizontally it's a level. Right. And so I went to the British Museum, for instance, and in Switzerland there was a time, I don't re- remember where it was, but of course there are a lot of clocks and watches there. Right. And it was, um, I didn't see anything um, there. And well, a few other places I've gone. I guess it was advantageous that you had MIT right across the block. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So, well, let's go back because so that was in Boston, but where did you grow up? Here in Manhattan. So I grew up on East 88th in York and first. Oh, that's right. And then you. Yes. And so you were, uh, do your parents were like, what did they do? What brother? Well, were, were uh, they lifers in Manhattan or? Uh, my father was several generations yeah. and a couple. And uh, he grew up on Morningside uh, Heights yeah. and when it was a nice neighborhood and then after the war, my father was in the Philippines, but after the war they bought uh, the building for $6,000. <laughs> and then, haha, between York and First. Yeah. And my mother is 101 and still lives there. Oh, really? And she's an amazing uh, person because she started making art at 98 and a half. Sure, and it's never too late. Never put never pen, too late. you know to paper, pencil to paper, never uh, uh, did, she's doing collage cutouts, they're all over the place, I can show you, and uh, it was astonishing, she would say to older people, 
when you're sitting chair bound and you're going out of your mind, what do you do? And so she invented, reinvented herself. Cut some and paper. she had been around capitals all her life when she was a child. Uh, she was a, her her father was one of the first multi uh, national companies. Mm-hmm. So he started Janssen knitting mills over in England, and he went to Germany, cut out of there in 1933, because he already could feel that the Nazi prince, uh, presence was there. He was working with Canole, the furniture yeah. manufacturer, because he he did the tubular knit. The invention of Janssen was the tubular knit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't until I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington three years ago that I learned why he was so prescient. How did he know way back in '33 to get out? Especially when you have a tempting deal. You have somebody like Canole, who's still in business, doing fabulous furniture. Yeah. Why he would not continue working. What I learned in the uh, museum was that there were wild camps so that uh, already uh, Jews, uh, gypsies, and homosexuals were already put in wild camps before the concentration camps. They're being round up Six years, yeah. Six years? Isn't that amazing? Well, that's a red flag. Yeah, and it was there. I I didn't even get off the first floor. I was reading all the stuff there before we had to leave. Uh, Anyway, so my mother was trotted through the... After they left Germany, they went to France, and she was trotted around the Louvre every Thursday so fast that there wasn't time to describe anything. They just marched through as an exercise to see what was there. Art, an art drive-by. An art drive-by. <laughs> right. No time to talk. So just, funny. just take it in. Yeah, and she had other great stories. So she had such a lively life. For instance, the typical French, like Stendhal said, you know, the nation of shopkeepers, right? Yeah. And, and you're allowed to put your own people down. Anyway, he... So she... she the concierge had a rug tax. Whenever she had guests, she charged my mother centimes for rug wear. <laughs> <laughs> Who would think of that? Right. Who? <laughs> and uh, so the, in the school where she went, there was a, a, a the um, head whatever she was, master, mm-hmm. she asked for uh, the eyes of all the fish. They were served whole, and the girls would pass down the eyes or the heads, whatever was uh, they felt like doing right. to her because it was a specialty she liked. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, my mother had all of this going on, you know, and, and she worked at the American Crafts Council and then the World Crafts Council and mm-hmm. traveled with Beatrice Wood, you know, the most beloved of uh, Duchamp's girlfriends. Yeah. He actually loaned her money. He was such a skinflint and had no money himself anyway. <laughs> but he did. And which he wrote in her book I Shock Myself, which I highly recommend to anybody who wants to read a fabulous story about yeah, that sounds a fabulous good. woman. Right. And we met her when in 1987 I digress about my work, but yeah. in 1987 when there was the centennial of Duchamp's birth. Mm-hmm. We went to Philadelphia, and she gave a talk there. She got to meet her? Yes. And in her talk, Tini Duchamp did not come, the widow of Marcel. Yeah. And uh, she, she didn't come because she knew it was going to be totally outspoken. And so Beatrice said, 
well, I had a menage, you know, but it wasn't all the same night. One night it was with Rocher, and the other night it was with Duchamp. Oh, my goodness. So she was a good girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was quite racy for right. when the 30s, I guess, yeah. was it? And in, in, in Paris. And uh, so Jules and Jim, she was the model for Jules and oh, Jim. Really? Only she wasn't crazy. Right. Well, that's a lot. I mean. But we met her later after that, after that talk at the museum. And, and uh, she invited us out to visit her when in, in, I think, was it? Anyway, Ojai, Ojai. She mm-hmm. lives in Ojai, outside of uh, L.A. And there was a show that both Bill and I were in of John Cage's Roly Holy Over. Mm-hmm. And he didn't live to the, see the... Uh, witnessed the opening, but he worked on it for three years just before he died. It yeah. opened a f- uh, really on his birthday, would have been, right. which he was a few weeks short of, two weeks. And uh, anyway, so we went up to visit her, and she looked at those days, it was my slides. So I brought slides along to show her, and she held them up and she said, You're dangerous. And I said, <laughs> Why? And she said, You're good. And that never works out in a relationship <laughs> for the woman to be so right, good. Right. But she was from another era. Yeah. So, well, well you know you... what, just to digress again, but Marina Abramovic says uh, that two artists should never uh, live together. Oh, right. Remember? I think more than her. Just, I think a lot of people say have that. felt that way. Yeah. You're but the that. advantage Bill and I have is we're 16 years apart. Well, that's a Which buffer. I think helps. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah, and then when you're at the, different stages of your career, so you don't have the expectations. And I had developed myself. I had thought I wanted to be an artist since the age of five mm-hmm. when I was first learning to read. My father gave me a reader that he made, so he would draw. He was very skilled. All my family can draw, everybody, mm-hmm. except for my mother, who's I, I had her draw me. Recently? Drew, yes. Yeah, because he just, just started. Yeah, but he, it was even within a few months. And it was such a primitive drawing. Interesting that her dexterity and her sense of design and color mm-hmm. are very sophisticated. But the drawing was not, because she'd never done it. Yeah. And uh, it seemed she didn't have the same eye hand. But the my father and three siblings have very fine eye hand. Yeah. You know, and good at darts or that kind of thing right and um so my father drew like oldenburg this beautiful pan you know very facile and Mm -hmm. nice drawing and then he wrote the word pan and i think like many children i was more interested in the drawing right than the word which is foreign and but right then i thought oh that's what i want to do and our family was slow to start we had three generations of uh, my grandmother, my father, and then finally me, making art. Yeah. So my grandmother went to Tyler Art School in oh, Philadelphia, in Philadelphia. Yeah. You, you know. Yeah. And so that was in the teens of, of the last century. I didn't Very know school early. Was, that school's been around for a long time. I guess though. so. Uh, and uh, so we have her color charts and things like that, uh, designs. And she was, she got into more fashion later Mm -hmm. uh, covering chairs and she did really beautiful things for instance in her house in New York 
which they bought for only 18000 on 75th Street, oh, reaching gosh. Lexenpark. Killing me with these early bargain basement oh, prices. Oh, it was a beautiful <laughs> building. It had white um, and black marble uh, ground floor mm-hmm. and a spindle stair uh, to the second floor. And her second floor, she painted, it was a library, and it had a secret door into another space. It was fabulous. That's really cool. Yeah, so one of the bookshelves moved. It's very and, bond, very Bond-like. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? And so she uh, painted gold, and it had uh, a garden on the south, so the sun set, and you could see the place lit up uh, on fire at night. Yeah, that, you know, that, that it was warm setting. glow. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. And then she had a bay window with mullions that you know you could sit and read, cozy up and read, looking out on the garden. Those like New York oases are so Wonderful. amazing, yeah. Yeah, and in the country, she did this. There were uh, curtains in our parlor that were floor to or sitting room, uh, f- ceiling to floor, because they were French windows, and uh, they had uh, black with uh, pink roses, and she lined it with shocking pink, and there. The sun set on the west there. I mean, we go northwest. Mm-hmm. And uh, they lit up again like fire. And in the evening, those, flow- those flowers were brilliant, shocking pink. So, so you she saw had that, that sign. You, yeah, I you, saw that as a child. And yeah. she had this great sense, you know, asymmetrical. She'd cover a chair with a big uh, lily, you know, and it would be asymmetrical. Yeah. You know? So if, I imagine all those visual... Yeah, so everybody was visual. My mother impact, too, yeah. obviously. Yeah, you know, uh, and uh, so when we would go to a restaurant, my father would say, "My, that's Jerry built. Look at that." You know, we'd be looking at the molding on the floor oh, yeah, or something. Yeah. But t- taught to look at uh, uh, the way things are built, architecture, and of course, uh, uh, visual art. And we were taken to museums, and we lived near the Met. Yeah. We're taken to the MoMA. Nobody in those days, there were whole galleries that would be empty, as That's people crazy. know. <laughs> empty. Yeah. Art is far too popular now. It's, and, you know, it's funny because you will hear people say, well, like, oh, no one cares about art anymore. Who says that? I don't know, young kids. Where they, oh, my God, they have to go to a museum. There's lines. Right? I, I, when people go to a new city, I feel like the first thing they do is like, well, let's go to the museum. Yeah, because it's cool. It's yeah. now the cool thing to do, I right. think. Yeah. And the shops and, you know, it's, it's something that people get ideas from. Definitely. Plenty of designers and and uh, ad people and on and on yeah. go for well, it's ideas. inspiration, for sure. Yeah. So you grew up in, Here. you know, in the heart right of all this heart of all that. Yeah. activity. I when mean, it was free and when nobody was there to yeah. crowd you out. And with a family that was creative and so probably, Very I imagine, creative. supportive. My father built uh, a house. He wasn't an architect. And he built a house uh, in the country out of stone that we still, we summer there. Was that the Pennsylvania one? Yeah. Yeah. And we had a, we inherited a, a eight staircase, five floor uh, Victorian folly, Greek revival. Jeez, with that's... a cupola. So it was very romantic. It even had a, an armoire, which we always wanted to turn into Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> I can picture it now. Stopped against the wall. <laughs> right. But it did have all these uh, wonderful places, you know, around. Uh, and so it was quite romantic. And my father had built this stone cottage, which we always rented. 
and it was smoky and it was leaky. It, it was not properly built because it was built on bedrock. There was no proper drainage. And he built a swale in the front. But eventually, and a, Bill and I built a French drain like a mustache around mm-hmm. the house. That solved that. And we later civilized it. We built teepee vertical fires till it got roaring hot <laughs> and then could go horizontal. So yeah. we figured out the smoky fires and tweaked it, you know. Yeah. But he just built it. None of them had known anything about architecture. And he started how at long? age 11. I was going to say, how long did it take? Well, he started at 11 just building. There's a turret. So, again, a kind of romantic attitude he had. And he put rings around a circle for a turret that was mm-hmm. just stone on the floor, on the ground. And uh, his brother built the fireplace. And don't think about it. <laughs> Sasha. Yeah. And so uh, then as they became teenagers with a bunch of their cousins, they began to build the house and got a professional to help with the roof and cabinets. How did they find that land? Like, how did they... The land was their great aunts. And their great aunts, as they saw that they were building this, she gave them the land and uh, some help for nails and wood and things they had to buy. Yeah. And the windows they found uh, uh, through uh, hunting around town, people who had old windows that they had in their garage. And they even got garage doors for two uh, beautiful windows, glass 20s garage doors. Oh, nice. And so they're, you know, we've continued to work on it. When, when, well, I guess it's a work on progress, but when did it get finished and to the point Um, to where it was After the Second World War. Yeah. One quick war story that was outrageous, we thought, but the family, my father had just come back. He had a child right away, Mm -hmm. as everybody did then. And so 45, 46, my brother was uh, born and they didn't go back to the country house until 47 two years after well he's buying a house and settling a new family and unwinding from a war yeah and uh goes up there and they sold the land directly ab- abutting our uh stone house property there were two lots mm-hmm. that would be a protective lot and it was sold at auction for back taxes and you would think that war vets would be given a little more time. Right. Yeah, because they're off fighting the war. They're doing a few <laughs> things and not thinking about paying their taxes. Right. On land in a, you know, I mean, we were lucky we had land in another state. Yeah. Needless to say. But anyway, so we finally uh, recouped that land by swapping just when they were planning to uh, build on it. Has it changed a lot, you know, in recent Not a lot. Years? This is a really failed town. It's pretty out there. Which is great for <laughs> summer people. You know, coming back to a, for all the people coming back there. to a Starbucks next door. <laughs> yeah, it had ne- the man who founded it failed in three different uh he was tanning leather because of all the fir trees and the tannic acid and he was he had uh made um uh glass from Glass Creek that business went belly up and then his last fiasco he made bricks and he in order to get the county seat because he had huge ambitions he was german descent second Mm -hmm. generation and he um wanted to uh he he wanted his um 
town to be the county seat. So he offered $10,000 and built the courthouse, which fell down in five years. <laughs> so our house is built with the next lot of bricks, we hope. <laughs> but it's only held together by a century and a half of paint. That's crazy. Yeah, 1840. So, but you spent most of your time in the city growing up. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And then were you, I mean, I know early on you were, you saw that drawing and you said, I, I'm going to do this, <coughs> but in school was art your thing or did you? Yeah. Yeah. I took, uh, I, I was in an art class at school. In like New York much. City schools, what's it like, you know, when you're Babysitting, growing Babysitting, they don't do anything in the art department. Oh, very. Yeah. I went to Nightingale Bamford School. It was very rigorous. Uh-huh. I don't think I ever worked so hard in my life than since exam week there. Isn't that funny? College, <laughs> college wasn't so hard. And setting up shows, I work well in advance, yeah. so they aren't frantic. Right, they're kind of very peaceful. Yeah, installations, not last minute freak out. No, I'm, yeah, I can't do that either. Well, you know, because you work for a body of work, and it's serious business. Yeah. Definitely. So when you're in high school, are you thinking art? Like, are you well, thinking I painted, art the whole time? I painted or? a good, yeah. I knew I was going to be an artist. I thought I, for a while I was going to uh, get into theater because I uh, directed plays from the second grade to the fifth grade. And then that was in public school. Then we moved over. Yeah. Because of a latchkey kid murder at age eight, one Oof. child murdered the little girl that he brought over oh man so uh, that was the end of public that was school? the end of uh, all four kids in our are moved over to private schools was that a big my shift? brothers went to collegiate where they masters of the universe are supposed to be trained <laughs> didn't quite work out no not a master of the universe <laughs> but one of their classmates was uh, head of the whitney oh <laughs> small world uh, yes so they're so when you, uh, and well, the other question I wanted to ask is growing up, what was the music situation in the house? Was it a musical family? No. No music? No. Well, yes, music. Wait, I shouldn't say that. I say no so emphatically. None. Silence. <laughs> right. <laughs> Silence in the uh, house. Well, we didn't listen to the radio. Yeah. Uh, so we, my parents liked uh, musicals on Broadway. Okay. So we went to those. It's very New York. <laughs> yeah, we did that. Camelot. Yeah. Oliver. So we knew the records. We'd buy the records first, and the kids would sing. My, I remember my 11-year-old brother is singing at the top of his lungs, and they, you know, along with Oliver. <laughs> uh, and so we did that. Well, that's interesting. And so, Cole Porter. So we sang. We have a well, piano yeah. here. We have a piano in the country. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, I studied piano. I was terrible at it. Just terrible. Right. I, join, I went to boarding school for one year in England, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I slogged away. I loved piano. I used to make up pieces. Yeah, uh, we had a donkey. I would make up pieces to the clickety clack of his, you know, <laughs> uh, walking. Yeah, and um, uh, I even brought the donkey in the house, that Greek revival house. Uh-huh. Nobody was home. I was thirteen, well beyond the age of reason for this. Right, but I brought him in. <laughs> And the scale of this donkey compared to the furniture, his back <laughs> rose above the tables and the backs of the chairs and whatnot. And the sound, speaking of sound, when he came in, there was a wooden floor and then a tile floor and then rugs, you know, and you could hear he was 
completely alert, well-behaved, um, in awe. And the reason I brought him in was I was staking him outside, and he looked so crestfallen that I was leaving. Uh. Oh, and it wasn't thought, for sonic, like, percussive sampling? <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. And so he looked so crestfallen, and I thought, well, okay, you can Come see where <laughs> I go. <laughs> Disappear all the time. So I brought him into the parlor, and I played this song that I had made up. I told you once, I told you twice, I told you one thousand times, and I'm not going to tell you anymore. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> but anyway, the donkey... I let go of the halter by then. He was not going to do anything uh, outrageous. And like when you tried to get on him, he'd turn around and bite your foot or let the saddle blow his belly up and let the saddle slide. All the tricks, you know. And so uh, he had his ears perked up and you knew this animal recognized the tune. That's funny. They do, yeah. I guess donkeys are smarter than... Oh, they're much smarter than horses. Credit. You know. So then I brought him back. It was so much fun showing him all the rooms. So I went down the front hall, you know, and back into the old dining room. And then the formal dining room. And then there was another dining room, a lunch room. And then there's even a breakfast room. (laughs) This sounds so grand. the full tour. Believe it or not, it's very shabby and falling down. And, you know, it's one of these white elephants. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, oh, I want to bring him upstairs. Could you imagine? He was smarter than I am. Then he reared up. He would not go up. I got his front four locks you know right on the front not four locks four feet on the uh a step you know yeah but he was not going to get the hind ones in advance uh, don't you wish you had that on videotape unbelievable <laughs> i was there alone and then i thought oh my god if i'd brought him up we'd never get him down yeah you know and we'd have to break out a window and lower him down <laughs> there's an ass stuck on the second floor we gotta get him out <laughs> mom dad sorry <laughs> so at dinner well my parents were very adventurous so at dinner i was bursting I, everybody was there and i didn't and i said well you know who came to the house oh, today. you couldn't hold it in <laughs> i told them at dinner well i did all afternoon until, yeah. and they um they were delighted yeah there was nothing that's out cool. of place. Cool parents. Yes. Yeah. That's the. I think that's the the litmus test for cool parents. If you can bring a donkey in the house, <laughs> and they, don't, they don't ground you for weeks. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> and then um, they also were cool. Even Bill criticized them for this. But when we did a year in boarding school, my mother was brought up in England. Eventually, Jansen was that was the home base. Mm-hmm. And during the Second World War, they converted to parachutes and shrouds for the war effort. Um, and my grandfather stayed over. The family was shipped back here. Uh, but uh, where was I going? Uh, she was in England and growing up. And now I suddenly forgot. Well, I had, had such a chain here of events. Well, it had something to do with the, them being cool parents. And oh, yes, cool parents. There you go. And so at the end of our school year... Mm-hmm. Uh, I had planned very meticulously a two-week holiday in Ireland. And I had noted to the family, I was 16, my sister was 15. And uh, I, or 14 and a half, I was just 16. And um, I had given every bus route and train and so on, ferry and whatnot. And uh, they let us go. But we did none of that. We slept in haystacks. We hitchhiked. The first time, when we left my aunt's, we took one stop on the train. And the first dumb thing we did is hitchhike 
to uh, Wales and Fishguard and pick up our luggage separate, which you, we, after that we never parted from our luggage. You know, but that was on the train and we were hitchhiking. Yeah. And we hitchhiked sometimes roads in Ireland both ways, you know, and we almost hitchhiked with tinkers, you know, gypsies. Yeah. But being a little bit New York, we thought, hmm, maybe not. Well, yeah, you had the radar. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> but, um, you know, we stepped in a haystack when we couldn't get into a Trappist monastery. Anyway, after talking about this and getting home, and telling my my mother was quite appalled, but my father was enjoying it. And we told them when they were having dinner next door with another family, which breaks the ice a lot. Yeah. Man, that's... It's a good time to tell your parents things right. that are outrageous. <laughs> yeah. The timing's everything. Yes. Um, you did a lot, didn't you? Yeah, so that was great. And I was in charge. And in the haystack, I was thinking either we made a pact that... Uh, you know, you shouldn't waken the other person unless it was really extreme. And I heard this, like, <sighs> you know. <laughs> and then after some minutes, I realized, of course, it was my sister's breathing, which was so loud yeah. in a haystack. Right. And then I had fantasized that a farmer would come with a pitchfork, you know, and and we put our luggage in another haystack. And we got up about five in the morning and uh, went to Vesper's, the Trappist monks, we could climb in the back and up to the second floor of the mm-hmm. balcony and listen to them for about two hours till breakfast was served, which was what they had advertised, was they would take in strangers. We could have stayed the night yeah, and been fed. Right. And people go there uh, for the cure. Yeah. There, there are often you know, so many drunks in Ireland. I'm oh, afraid. yeah. To get off that. Well, well I want to get back to Cole Porter. <laughs> yeah, so then we sang Cole Porter. My father loved Cole Porter, and he grew up. His father was uh, one of the alcoholics, afraid to say, at the Algonquin Round Table. Oh. Best friends with P.G. Woodhouse, uh-huh. who was writing hits every you know couple of years yeah. or so uh, with Cole Porter. Anything goes. Uh, I mean, and the, so they were right in the thick writer? of it. Jeez. And his uncle, my my father's uncle on a, another side of the family. He mm-hmm. was in theater and got free tickets for Broadway. That's where the addiction to Broadway came. So music was like tied to narrative for you guys. Yeah, 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 I would say. Which is funny because, well, it's not funny, but in in your work, I feel like there's more of... It's all abstraction. It's an abstraction, yeah. Yeah. Which I guess, make, I mean... Well... I have no. this problem where I tie music together with art. It's almost like a weird Why form of synesthesia. Well, it, just because sometimes it, it gets in the way and you know you complicates could, you things. You could use it. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I do. John Cage had a visual sense. When he lived near, on 18th Street, near uh, a uh, firehouse, mm-hmm. and he would translate the uh, sirens to tulips popping up. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. To make it palatable. Well, I don't, we can get into that, but I mean, John Cage was a huge influence Well, on as me. you know, we were very close like family for yeah. 15 years. And John said to my mother uh, that I was the daughter he never had. That's nice. And I was uh, 27 when I met him, so I was still forming. Yeah. And I think I was late, you know, uh, developing. And uh, But he saw... S- I had already done three major chance works before I'd met Cage mm-hmm. and Anastasi. 
and they were uh, the clock and level. And um, I should really say timer, timer and level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's three and a half minutes, but it's unmarked, as I said, or right. prox. And um, uh, then uh, the gold egg, which is a cast of a goose egg shell here, but originally it was hen's eggs, and I cast it in bronze, then silver, then finally gold, mm-hmm. as I could afford it. And as it had to be, the goose laid the golden egg, had of to course, be. Of course, yeah. And uh, the scale is so nice, too. Well, that's narrative, right? That's, that's narrative. a sort oh, of well, conceptual I have, piece no, tied I have, to narrative. Uh, but that piece, so that because I had uh, an installation with live birds, mm-hmm. and they were in my house. I lived alone. I had five room apartment, eighty dollars. How do you like that? Wow. Top floor, and <clears throat> I had um, since I lived alone and was given some doves, I let them free, and I hung a bicycle wheel. One day I was I bicycled back and forth to museum school <clears throat> over the Charles freezing in the winter mm-hmm. and in the ruts of snow but I go back and forth and one day I found this abandoned bicycle wheel uh, and I picked it up and strung a, a steel cable through it and hung it to the ceiling and then the birds flew on it and would spin oh, and yeah. they would sleep on it because it was the only high thing they like the highest thing they right? have to yeah. as protection right and so uh, I would clean up the droppings everywhere, but eventually put a Zen archer's target below it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so left that. Amazing. And then I did an installation of that 20 years later. So that piece, uh, the egg, and the egg was chance too, because originally I had a prosaic idea to make a little... Uh, case with a hinge so mm-hmm. the top and the bottom would hinge together and then uh, when I did the cast the first cast had a hole in the bottom so there went that idea yeah. and I was very dip, uh, you know upset about it at first and then realized no now it's a sculpture right so it just forced me into doing that do you well just a parallel I I told you earlier that I'd play music, you know, music yes. was a big part of my life when I got to graduate school and I met, you know, my studio neighbor who became my best friend and uh, we started playing music together and there was a cellist who was an architecture graduate student. We formed a band uh-huh. and we were trying to figure out a name. Neat, a cellist in a band. A cello, drums and guitar. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we called ourselves 33.3 as a sort of homage to oh, Cage's. Yeah. yeah. Because we were heavily influenced by, you know, his music and drawing yeah, and, great. and repetition. And I've always been, you know, really into sort of avant-garde. Like, no, that's a cool name. Yeah, 33.3. And, you know, the record it had yeah, that reference to. Yeah, 33 and a third. But we, uh, yeah. No, but his was 433. Right, but he you. had, if I'm not mistaken, there was 33s going on with him, like in more than one occasion, I believe. Is that right? I think. Uh, I'm not sure. I think there was 33 at some some, or wait the silence piece what was the duration four minutes four minutes and 33 but there's the 33 yes you got that i think that's what it was it was and then you have 33 and a third with the records yes so right yeah so it kind of but it was bill did a great piece with the records and uh he got 78s and these saved his life he was he had polio and uh when he was 16 so he was quarantined 
And uh, to save his life at the time, mm -hmm. his parents, who were very poor, depression poor, bought a record player for him. And they got, they sent, I, either the library or somehow they sent away, there were, you could get free records, World's Greatest Music. So that was the label, and it was Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and then, you know, developed from there. Yeah. And music saved his life because he had something to do. Right. Cooped Distra up in a room. It's almost like besides distraction homework. is important, you know? Totally. Like taking your mind like off. my mother. So he really was more focused on music. Had 10,000 records here we have. Yeah. And uh, so what he did was later this piece from the... I think it's the 70s, mm -hmm. 77. There are uh, 378s on three different children's record players. And he's got it programmed by chance, so they play at different times, the groove of each record. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and it sounds, because it's aleatory, it sounds like uh, the tide, ocean. Yeah. The waves. Isn't that something? It's amazing. Yeah, you would, because it goes, you know, right. different like that it swells in a way that yeah and it's unpredictable yeah because he had somebody uh i think it was columbia somebody helped him with the chance right aspect of it so the so the arms go to pause you know and stop and then they start again yeah but they are bound in there and it's funny because the neverland if you zoom into the grooves on a record it's almost wave-like, you know, and then you have sound waves. They are waves. sound waves, yeah. Sound waves, you know, it's... Yes, right, it makes perfect sense. It does, it's, it's kind of it like a resonating... It was a beautiful piece. Like it's a lovely to have an, a rent, you know, to hear. Yeah, I imagine. Something I, I did here, this, this piece up here that's the bottle rack uh -huh. that uh, we bought in Paris, mm -hmm. but both Anastasia and I were co-artistic advisors of Merce Cunningham Dance Company. Yeah. So we did that from 84 until the closing of the company, only nominally, but for about 10 years we were active. Right. And so when we were in Angers, the first piece, uh, I spotted the typical body, bottle rack that was still around, you know, 100 years later, you know, since the design. Mm -hmm. And I went to the library and counted up how many rings and did it look a little like Duchamp's, you know, were they still making a similar bottle rack pretty right. much yeah and so we've had it hanging here teeny duchamp came over and she saw that we had it and she said oh very economical when i told her it was like <laughs> a few euros right well, it wasn't euros at the time and uh so then uh i wrapped it with led lights mm-hmm and I still have it embedded in the ceiling. See, I'm going to hide that and, yeah. and paint it and so on. I just did it yesterday. Uh -huh. But it's been there for years, and it's solar. Oh. But what I did yesterday was clean up the wire like that, or partially clean, clean oh. it up. So that's a sensor? Yeah, it's a sensor in the corner so of the window. powered by that. And uh, I don't know a lot about solar, but this is maybe five or six years old. And uh, so the light flickers on at 5.30 and goes off around 6, or less, even 5.40. It's on for just a few minutes like that, and then it dies. Just naturally from the lack of energy. energy. Yeah. Now, before, when I had it facing, for years, I had it facing these uh, track lights. Mm -hmm. And then it would store light when we'd 
be in this room with light on. Yeah. And then if you turn the lights off, then it flickered. Only when the lights were off, it would flicker. Oh, I see. And so then I decided to make it the way it was supposed to be, solar. Yeah. So it mirrors the day cycle. Yeah, so it's the solar. And so the title of the piece is Duchamp is Overrated. (laughs) (laughs) And I was a big, you know, Duchamp fan. But I've begun to sort of shift from that. So he was dominated the first part of the last century. And of course, his uh, influence will never die because he gave artists permission. Right. Artists may not know what... um, all about his work or all the complexity of it. But the one thing that we do know is we have permission. Yes. And growing up, I saw the uh, uh, the bicycle wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was downstairs in the Museum of Modern Art when you first came in. There it was. Even Dali's taxi cab was there. That came and went. But, it, but the, as I recall, the bottle rack stayed for years and years on a platform when you first entered. And uh, so there's a little replica that the Whitney made on the piano. You see it over there? Oh, yeah. There it is. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's, it's really it's metal. cool. And it spins, of course. And so uh, that was an early influence on me. Mm-hmm. And then I had the Schwartz book, and I read completely about Duchamp. He was, I did a lot of sort of duchamp mania stuff and, uh, before I met Anastasi. And who was one of the founders of minimal conceptual art. Right. And uh, so, but I was well-versed and well-ready before that. Mm-hmm. And then meeting Cage three years later, after Anastasia and I got together in 1977, uh, I was further pushed to using chance. I had already used it, but only nominally. Well, the birds were totally. Yeah. Because the installation, later the installation was bicycle wheel and the birds fly around. I showed it in art school as uh, a work of mine. Yeah. Uh, Which apparently counts. So you can establish an early date for a work if you show it in a... uh, at school or in any formal kind of way. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, if you just do it in your studio, it doesn't count. Right. Well, you so that environment, that time was. Such I guess a you could photograph period. it and mail it to you, and that would be a copyright. How's that? Yeah, that would be proof. That would be proof. <laughs> early proof. It's really kind of. I, I can't help but think about it when I see that. I just kind of jogged my memory that my best friend, who was in that band, yes, which we were listening to the Cage and influenced. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago in a car accident. Oh, oh. But we were, you know, best friends, and yeah. uh, he had a tattoo. Oh, of the bicycle rack. Of the bicycle rack. How amazing. Just of the odd. Isn't that great? Like, combination of things. That's a great idea. Well, I had an idea, two ideas for tattoos. Nobody's done them yet, but anyway. (laughs) Uh, Here's, no, I'm not going to be doing it. But uh, you see this uh, over here, this piece with the thorn along the arm. Mm -hmm. That would make a great tattoo. So it's a thorn branch from runs a honey locust, which are right here on Riverside Park. Mm-hmm. They're 60 feet tall, and they have thorns that are can be 40 inches long. Thorns. Yeah. And the thorns sprout other thorns. You know, and that's in the corner, too, right? That's like Yeah, a- those two. And 
Uh, I didn't set it up again because I was working on that. But right. Anyway, they're supposed to be opposite corners. Meanwhile, uh, so that would make a great tattoo. So the thorn branch would run down the arm and then across onto the hand. Very cool. Yeah, and I made a dress doing with the thorns running down the arm. I wore it to Merce's final birthday celebration at BAM. Nice. In 2009, I think it was. Well, and uh, so I had the dress, and I've shown the dress. Just maybe, maybe a listener who's a tattoo aficionado will get it yeah. and send you a photo of the tattoo. Yeah, thorn. Well, you have to use my thorn because I have the most aesthetic thorn. Yeah, that is specific. Get, get in contact. That's not like the rose thorn sort of thing. I mean, that's no. A, it's and also it, yeah, it's a good scale, and you have to see where it branches. It's beautiful too in the window with the. I mean that. Yeah, that's a, a film. So yeah, it's a, with it's the a light, negative. The light coming behind it is really yes. Nice. It used to be black. It's turning blue, which I like. Oh, it's the, fading. The LED lights are blue, oh, so nice. it's quite magical. You know, when you walk through a room and then you see something that happens only for a short time, it's like uh, uh, a little uh, moment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's sure. kind of what we live for, right? Those yeah, moments. Yeah, yeah, just something. Yeah, like a like an artichoke catching fire. It right. happens once in a lifetime. Yeah, I haven't. They ha- do that, you know. Oh, really? Yes. Apparently. I haven't happened upon <laughs> that. There's even a medieval drawing of one. So it's been of happening for some time. Artichoke on fire? Yes. How strange, right? Sounds like a good title for a compendium of poems. Uh, yes, Artichoke, artichoke on Fire. On fire. <laughs> there you go. Well, so we've been able to touch a little bit on your work here and there through yeah. tangential <laughs> points, but. Um, you want to dig in? Well, it's so it's so diverse. Yeah. Well, you know, I I love uh, I feel like Picasso. A real artist does everything. You know, people who just do one thing. It yeah. seems to me uh, are not so wide and deep, can obviously. I, but you know, a real artist like you can tackle anything. Like it's in your spirit. Can I provide a counterpoint to that? Because I often thought that. Yeah, yeah. But um, I was speaking to some of my students about Ankawara and uh-huh. and just how, um, I mean, one of my all-time favorite artists. Really? Yeah. So focused. And it beautifully meditative, and I think that has a lot to do with, I mean, this is pure conjecture, and I don't know if it's yeah, right. I but I can't connect to that one. I, I think it's a very meditative sort of Buddhist mentality of, of letting, of kind of focus and meditation and emptying out you know, that I guess so. That becomes such a beautiful and that work while seemingly so one note and monotone and repetitive repetitive. Right. A lot of musicians yeah. that I love, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, uh-huh. people like that. Um, that it Gertrude it actually Stein. yeah. It actually means so many different things to so many people who would go into those rooms and see those dates. That I think it becomes activated by the viewer in a way, if they're willing. But it, it really well, is. Well, that's beautiful what you bring to it. I just brought lead eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to your. <laughs> it wasn't for me. And to your credit, I think most people are thinking that way the about that work. Thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, to be honest, I think when I first saw that work, I felt that way about it. Yeah. And then it took, you know, many, many just visits to Dia, really, to Beacon. Uh-huh. And just seeing that work and, yeah. you know. You saw the Guggenheim show then. Yeah. Yeah, I did but too. The, uh, the, you know, the Agnes Martin, which I love Agnes Martin. And yes, the I, beauty, I like her. I feel like it's, 
it's a similar thing, except he's not playing out formal shifts in the work necessarily. He's that sort of repetitive kind of beauty of the sort of minimal poetics of the piece are activated by whatever that date means to certain people and the focus and, you know, the meditation and the rumination of, of, you know, I'm, I'd say get out of whatever cage you're in. That's what John Cage used to say. (laughs) Although, but, but if someone's doing it, like he must have, there must have been a beauty to that for him. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do agree with you. Like Maybe Miles Davis in, is one of my favorite, my, my favorite creative people ever is Miles Davis. And he continually broke down doors and opened up new platforms. And yeah. he always changed. And, and you Yeah, know. so, you know, also I think that when you're working, after a while, you start copying yourself and it dies. Yeah. You just do. It's very, uh, I mean, it's interesting on Carrara. It could carry on that way, I suppose. But... Um, Maybe he dried up too. I don't know, but I've you know I've, yeah uh, because I've I've worked on things they could be years of a focus, and then you start to know that the energy is gone. It's going, and then it's out. And I think we're all temporal people, of course. So what we're doing is temporal. The, it's hard to sustain energy at this high level totally, yeah. of what Jack Smith would call a burning lusting. Mm-hmm. Which I loved his phrase, you know, burning, lusting. Yeah, it's romantic. But we've all seen artists who've gotten older and you can see them changing to change. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I better change it up here. I got to like get with the younger crowd or, you know, like that. You mean forced, they're stretching too far. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a forced change. Yeah. Where if I look at, some, I mean, I, I love Alex Katz. I, I just love the work. And, uh-huh. you know, it, if you see a Alex Katz that he did this week, compared to 30 years ago. He's pushing it. Yeah, but it's not a huge difference. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like well, it, I know. So, uh, I mean, Cage and Cunningham changed quite a bit as they developed. I think that was integral to their working yeah, process. Yeah, and that, that was uh, marvelous. Yeah. Uh, same with Bill. So we were of a different group. You know, when you said narrative, the, my latest... Uh, works that I'd like to show mm-hmm. next in New York. I showed in Vienna at Hubert Winter Gallery, but I'd like to show them here are uh, elements from the periodic chart. Mm-hmm. And so I did uh, gold, silver, <coughs> lead, mercury, uh, arsenic, and sulfur so far. Mm-hmm. And so for each of these, there is a, a narrative because, for instance, the gold is the gold egg, as I mentioned. Uh, silver I made in 1979. I cast uh, bullets, spent bullets, from the police firing range, 38s, into uh, silver. And then wore them as earrings as a um, political statement. Mm-hmm. And the utopian idea that you, know, you just retire one or two bullets, because each one was different on the same ear. Yeah. And uh, so that was silver. Lead, I cast a, a feather in lead. So there, a conundrum. And then for arsenic, it's called Eden Myth. And I, ca- I cast an apple and then covered it w- with apple seeds, which are arsenic, mm-hmm. and titled it Eden Myth. Because, of, of course, death was not 
introduced until Eve got blamed for eating that apple right. or got praised for being curious. Yes. However you look at it. Ironically, wasn't it a quince? <laughs> <laughs> it was an apple. <laughs> was it really? Yeah, it's an I apple. I thought it was a quince. That it was like Are you French? <laughs> <laughs> it was an apple. I am a little Belgian. <laughs> yeah, you look it actually. I'm like a mix of Yeah, things. you look it. Uh, <laughs> Northern European. Uh, it was an apple. Let yeah. me assure you. Okay. And uh, you got to go back and read your Bible again. I'll pass. <laughs> and uh, well, it's a very poetic, interesting book here. No, there. no, I've I've. Spent uh, but some time. <laughs> and, and so then that was uh, arsenic, mercury. Uh-huh. So these were, these were the concept was to use myths, fairy tales, or a conundrum uh, that we associate with those elements. Right. And uh, so that was my beginning point. And so Mercury, what I did is I took over there, you'll see it, uh, a statue, oh, yeah. a miniature statue of Giambologna's Mercury with the winged hem- helmet feet and feet and he's standing on Zephyr and he's the god of uh, currency mm-hmm. so it can even be money speed and uh, thievery how do you like that? pretty good money thievery <laughs> they go together right yeah and uh, so he's diverse god and so I used his caduceus which is what he's carrying it's the medical symbol it's, yeah that. And I made it into a thermometer with mercury. Oh, yeah. So I did I that it. in Vienna in a lab. It had to be done, again, I, I've had various works I've had to do in laboratories uh, because uh, a vacuum had to fill that tiny spindle. Yeah, it's beautiful. Do you do, you do so much different work. Where do you make all the, like you have different. Here. Right here? Here, in this living room. Uh, and in an alley. But, well, I'll just finish with this. Hold on. An alley in our building. But uh, here, uh, uh, the sulfur. So the sulfur, uh, I had, of course, brimstone is the devil, sulfur. So uh, that was a head. So the head is over there. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be uh, Bill, my husband. And I asked him if it was okay if I could use him as my model for the devil because... (laughs) Everybody's partner, husband. We've been together 45 years, so if you don't know the devil in that person. Yeah. Plus, his mother had called him Lucifer. Goodness. And he had done a piece <laughs> called Three Fiends years ago. So he had already, and there's a portrait over here he did of himself. I'm saying here, and, you know, we're on radio. Nobody can see these things. Right. But uh, it's quite a scary picture of a person, right? He looks devil. It's menacing. Yeah. Menacing, right. So that ran through. So I asked him if he would mind if he could be my devil model. He said, fine. But as it began to look very much like him, like just like him, yeah. I used calipers and I could do that yeah. and uh, you know, make it resemble him. Uh, then he said, oh, you know, you're going to make me a devil? What? And he was the backing lo- away from the idea of it. And I said, no, no. Don't you know the devil is handsome and seductive? How else does he work? Exactly. He's charismatic. And that's how he, he agreed. Yeah, the devil on the shoulder is that's always how, convincing. Yeah, and very seductive. Yeah, he's never the guy you just want to flick off there. It's like, get no. out of here, guys. So, he's always so, trying to lure uh, he you agreed. in. So there's the devil. So there's sulfur. 
Then I would like to, the next work I want to do, it's, they're all complicated to do, but uh, for copper, I wanted to do an IUD. Mm-hmm. It's not totally copper, but this is art. So I'll make right. a totally copper IUD. But that's how it works, through copper. And uh, then I have to have cast a glass womb, and then I'll have it inserted where it belongs. It's pretty... So that's a piece that will be part of that group. Part of that group. And then I have this other, I don't know, you'll get callers. I'll have this, this controversial idea. I'll throw it out to how many people did you say listen to you? God, who, no, like 10. We're oh, 10. <laughs> yeah, okay. just 10. Don't I worry. could handle 10 No responses. one has my phone number, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> because another one I was thinking for iron. Since Man Ray already did the best possible piece you could do with iron. Right. Uh, although I did think... That has nothing to do with this piece, but it would be funny because it couldn't be in my element work. But wouldn't it be funny to make the iron a refrigerator and instead of tacks, it would be icicles coming down in a line? Oh, right. Wouldn't that be fun? (laughs) Because all irons have holes for steam. Yeah. And they do have water in them and they do emit steam. So I thought that would be cool would be to have uh, icicles dripping down. But that kind of dilutes the idea. Like, if you look at that, you would think iron. Right. Maybe you would. Do you think it would work? Maybe in the context. Complex? Well, in the context of all the other work, it could You be, might get it. it then it would be, be superior together. to this piece. Because my next idea was iron, slave irons. Mm-hmm. But they don't have to just be, because I'm white, and it's not my fight. I mean, it's not my, it's my fight, but from a different side. Right. And... Uh, you know, not as a victim. And, uh, but other people have been indentured besides slave, you know, besides black slaves. Yeah. Like at sea, uh, in England, they just took in, indentured servants mm-hmm. or, in, you know, uh, uh, mariners. They just right. grab people off the street and throw them on a ship and make them, make them into seamen. Right. And if they rebelled, they were in irons. So, that's a thought. Yeah. It's kind of powerful, I thought, too. That'll be really interesting to see all that together. Yeah, and the iron I liked the most, because I looked online to look at irons, and of course, being aesthetic, it had to be one, was a, a ball, and then a chain, and then, and then a clasp to go around the ankle. Yeah. So. Well, can... Not to change gears completely, but can we talk a little bit about the angles work and how that fit into the other stuff? Because that's... Yeah, the I angles I remember seeing work. the angles work and being really compelled by that. I've always been... I don't What years They're mathematical you? and musical, you might say. Yeah. There's a score for them. And the score is so that uh, they can hang 12 different ways. There's an inner and outer... Uh, Triangle. Mm-hmm. The inner triangle is skewed. It's one third the size of the hole, and they're not large. They're twenty-one inches each side. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, when they hang in these twelve different positions, they radically change uh, the look of the piece. Mm-hmm. And at first, I thought there were only six positions. And I was in Germany, and there was this little boy. He was probably twelve or thirteen, and I was being snarky and I said to him so how many positions do you think this could go in (laughs) and he said 12 and I said 12 
Yeah, he says. And then he shows me how, of course, flipping it the opposite way, right. it could be 12 instead of 6. Yeah. So now I know 12. Thank you. 12 iterations. 12 iterations. And so I did a show where they were all together, and you could see each one of those iterations. Yeah. But other times what I've done with the hanging is I will throw a die, mm-hmm. one die first, and then two die the second. And then you would see, Sasha, don't think Uh-oh. about it. Sasha, we don't. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> see? Look at the power of that control. It's behaving. This is a cat who <laughs> likes to scratch a rug, and I'm able to control his mind. <laughs> it's impressive. It's impressive. <laughs> and a uh, very willful cat. Uh, so the uh, so I throw one die and then two. And let's say it's been in a show for a, a three months. I would note the days that it's open. Mm-hmm. And then the die would show uh, where what rotation it should be. If it was if the die came up the same, then uh, it would stay, and otherwise it would rotate. And the score would be put next to it and then marked in red. It would be done in pencil, and then it was red. And one collector acquired one, and he did a residency. He was actually uh, Edward Albee's assistant. And he did a residency in, in Norway, so he brought the triangle with him. And it happened to be the year 2006 that had 53 Sundays. So, every, so it, was, it had to change 53 times. And I thought, I picked Sunday because uh, you do less often on yeah. Sunday. And so he'd have a chance to focus and rotate it. That's really I told cool. him if he was away or he forgot, he'd put a circle. So, but what year were they made? Uh, 2000 was the first time. I was in a residency in Denmark. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a great show there in a a former wine cellar Mm -hmm. with arches and concrete floor and beautiful brick walls that were nubbly from uh, overpainting. Yeah. And uh, so I had five rooms and I showed... I made those in the residency. I had somebody who could make triangular stretchers. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, made those for the first time there. They're great. Thank you. I really love them. Yeah, I can see why, because there's a musical movement to them. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, one of my all-time favorite artists is Joe Bear. Oh, yeah. And that early work just continually blows me away. Like, I, you know, those oh, sort of sculptural paintings where she was painting around the edges and yes, right. I love uh, these old postcards where you'll have like Judd and like Andre like you'll have all these yeah. guys and then it's Joe Bear you know in a show right. with all these like holding her own and just making uh-huh. these kick-ass paintings you know so I just love that work yeah, but then beautiful. she she speaking of changing she did all this austere kind of like playing around with you know formal elements of abstraction and then she moved i think to germany and started painting like loose paintings of bears in the woods and stuff oh really yeah that's funny yeah totally changed yeah maybe she needed a new jet of life i think so that's what we're saying yeah exactly Sometimes yeah so you i cha- you know i change as the work and then i, I like uh jewelry ideas these these jewelry uh, that i'm wearing now mm-hmm. these cubes one is a natural pr- crystal a pyrite crystal and the other is a copy of it in gold. Mm-hmm. So I have fool's gold and real gold. Nice. And they're the crystals. Do they, I mean, well, I can't tell from here, but do One they look? One is shinier than the other. Okay. But is it the subtle? The natural crystal. 
They're subtle. Yeah. I wanted it. I, that's why I used white gold. Yeah. Because it's pyrite looks a little like white gold. Right. And so every, well, almost decade, I have some conceptual jewelry idea. That's cool. <laughs> so that was my idea do you, of late. Do you make them? Have you no, tried? I actually have somebody to make them. Oh, but I mean, do you, like, when you have those ideas, you pretty much... Oh, I make them, yes. Have them made? Yes. Oh, That's yeah. great. And then do yeah. you, is it just for you? Or are you making a lot of them? No, I, I actually show with Louisa Guinness Gallery. They have produced in solid gold my bullet earrings. Oh, nice. Which is great of them. And we're discussing this. They haven't seen these yet. But right. I ha- I'm making another pair. Hopefully they do it. And uh, as we were talking when I first came in, they curl around my ear because I don't have pierced ears. But they would be even simpler with somebody who had pierced ears. Right, yeah. Yeah, but they look great. I mean, you Yeah, you, you can't know. tell. Yeah, you would have yeah. no idea. The hair covers... Very sleek. Yeah. <laughs> so how you're in your day-to-day with, like, making work, is it... Do you have, like, periods where you're in the studio? Is it, like, is it kind oh, of Oh, yeah, up and down? it all varies because... Uh, uh, I do life. a lot of things. Yeah, life. <laughs> that thing. I don't know how normal people live life. I mean, I'm free every day to determine what I do. Totally spoiled. That is person. really a gift. With some, <laughs> you know, things one has to do. Right. And I do take, take care of Bill, who's 86, and now, you know, I'm really 100% caregiver. Yeah. But he's mobile and can make his breakfast. But still, you know, every aspect of life I have to take care of. Yeah. And, um, which I did all those years anyway from clothing to you know taxes yeah and uh i traded art one bad year for him i wanted him to trick or treat (laughs) with me and i said oh i'll do your taxes i finally had to you know offer that so he would go with me that's a pretty good offer i mean doing taxes that not a walk did it nothing else could i say (laughs) right did it you know but that did it and then i got caught but um, the trick-or-treating was fun because in New York, as we all know, you do not arrive at anybody's house no. unless you know them very well right. unannounced. Yeah. But on trick-or-treat, we went to Leo Castelli, trick-or-treated him. Dorothea Tanning, widow, as I, and great painter in her own right, um, just trick-or-treated her. So we went around town knocking on doors it was great fun and very liberating so i've always been and i did it to my teachers in high school see i didn't even know in manhattan because you know we live in brooklyn where you can go to brownstones and it's a little more door to door sort of thing but yeah. like i would figure in manhattan there's just so many large buildings that you wouldn't really go trick-or-treating it'd be weird well to just, be in a big building like ringing doorbells you know? yeah people do in this building they're very civilized you put on the back your back door whether you want to be trick-or-treated or not Oh. But what I would do is I would make the kids scream. Uh, scream. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. There's a Freudian slip. Yeah. <laughs> I meant squirm, That's, folks. I meant squirm. That's the trick. <laughs> I wasn't trying scream. to yeah, make them scream. No, I would say, trick or treat. What's your trick? Let's see it yeah. before the treat. Right. And uh, so it was always sort of playful. Yeah. But um, no, I was in the street. And uh, near the white marble house, there's a solid marble house. And we can be glad for the 1%, at least in terms of this house. It, they put a real copper roof on or repaired. I, I don't even remember if it had one before. But at any rate, all the marble was getting sugary. And so it was absolutely restored to the nines. And my mother had gone to a ball there, she said. 
when when she was young, it must have been the forties, and uh, so I was just near a group of trick or treaters, and not in costume at all, and not attached to them. But I went up to them and I said, "Could I be part of your party? And then could we trick or treat that house?" <laughs> <laughs> so nosy Parker, we did, and the, they opened up, and you know there was a guy there. They're lawyers. We found out a little. He has a dog, and uh, you know. It was millions and millions they poured into this beautiful uh, landmark building on 107th, Mm -hmm. corner of 7th and Riverside, 107th. Do you know it? I don't. Oh, it's one of the gems of Manhattan. Yeah. Solid white marble. I have to admit to being a little bit, like I feel like when I come uptown, I'm in another world. Do you get a nosebleed? No, I'm just in... (laughs) It's just a different world. I mean, I've only... You know, I'm such a Brooklyn person. Yes, this is far. Yeah, Brooklyn. and I, you know, my... We're very civilized here. We have a great bakery. When you leave, you should check it out. Because oh, she the, used to bake for Dean and DeLuca, and she's gone native up here. What's it called? Silver or, Moon. Silver Moon. I'll yeah. check it out. Best, best stuff. Yeah. I used to, you know, my first job when I moved to the city for after grad school was uh, at Macy's doing windows. Oh, really? And, you know, 34th Street, it's a lot. Like that commute every day, it's just a lot of people and a lot of... A lot to tear through. And I did windows. I did Tiffany windows oh, with nice. butterflies. So mm-hmm. I did that early on, uh, glass butterflies. And uh, I was doing that when I was the sixth, what was it, fifth year at museum school. I didn't get a prize. I was heartbroken, but... Uh, uh, friends of mine did uh, which was humiliating but because we'd worked for years you were all talking about it where you could get money and then I got a national endowment within the year so that was you know much better and even more money yeah so it was great uh but but I did the windows so they were uh with Gene Eugene Moore Mm -hmm. and he did a book because he was famous for doing exotic windows and so they were uh butterflies and and uh, moths and uh, luna moth and so on with glass eyes and semi-precious stones, carnelians and agates and amethysts and the like. Nice. And uh, so the jewelry hung. And then I did another one. We have a Picasso plate here, one of the, yeah, face. Notice that. <laughs> and uh, it, it was there with uh, a child's uh, sculpture that used the same colors. So yeah. I put that there. And that was in, uh, what's the other big jewelry place? Um, it's only Tiffany's and what's the other one? Um, not Harry Winston. Not Bendel's. I don't remember Not Stuart right Weitzman? Now. No, it's, it's on Fifth. It. It's on the same side. Anyway, it was the next famous, most famous place. Sorry, folks. Couldn't think of it. Yeah, I'm not up on my jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so I have an idea that would be great, I feel, and if the Animal League in this country wouldn't be so fierce, this is what could be done. So my bird installation could be done with finches, mm-hmm. a little miniature silver bicycle wheel, all right? Um, a la the a la Duchamp. Duchamp. And then we'd have finches, and it would be in the window, say Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, target would be a hologram. And so the birds would drop, but their droppings would go down below eyesight. So 
we don't want anything messy in a jewelry shop. You don't want a poopy like window. <laughs> lot, not in Tiffany's. Right. And uh, the birds would have a nest. They could fly up to the nest. They'd have their food, so there'd be a little ring. Uh, it could be a diamond bracelet that could be a swing for them. And uh, there could be water, grit, and food. Mm-hmm. They need three bowls. So they have bowls and a little ring where they can fly onto it and peck those things. Tiffany, Tiffany bowls, no less. Tiffany bowls, yeah. silver, right. yes, and water, thank mm-hmm. you. And uh, during the day, it would be live. At night, they have to sleep. A black curtain comes down, but they're filmed all day long, and through the night you can see the eight hours of activity of the day. That's pretty cool. Wouldn't that be great? Why don't you go pitch Everybody it? would... Flock. You got it. No I've pun intended. I tried to tip. Yeah. Pun, well, pun intended, maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did pitch it, but I tried. But you can't get in. The, uh, Eugene Moore died. He was my contact. Oh, yeah. And I've tried to connect to Tiffany's. Uh, but, you know, we have such a much more fierce. Uh, in Tokyo, I saw a blade, great building. It was red. Uh, and it had two small gem-like windows. Mm-hmm. And you could have two of these, you see, because there'd be so many people who want to look. Yeah. You need two. Right. <laughs> At least. Sounds great. Maybe you could do that as an art installation. Well, well then you'll still get in trouble. Well, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, you could just do it as an art installation. The yes, bird miniature. people will come after All you. in miniature, yeah. It's sort of like this little embedded. We have an I-beam here. It was condemned. When we first moved in, we took down three walls and opened this whole room up. And yeah. then put windows that aren't double hung so it opened right. up the whole space and uh, the I-beam here I penetrated I hope the fire department is not listening I, doubt, I don't think they're they don't think so okay. I don't think they're and I cut in it a little box and then I can show miniature sculptures that's really cool yeah and it's lit I unplugged it now because we're charging right but uh, it, it's uh, it's lit and uh, it's recessed. It's and pretty I, great. I, I got the idea. I can't say I invented that kind of miniature uh, because I saw it many years ago in Malmo in a show called The Century of Innocence, uh, The History of the White Monochrome. Mm-hmm. And it was the uh, 20th century, which a European pointed out said, no. That's the bloodiest century in history. I don't think you should have that title. But right, right. Anyway, the curators thought of it. Yeah. And it was the history of the white monochrome. And in there, uh, uh, now I'm going to... Oh, Mo, Ma, Malevich. Malevich. Yes. Malevich. He had a little toy uh, blocks that were a sphere, a cone... And a cube. These are Malevich's? Uh-huh. And they were just toys, so they yeah. were like an inch, or less even, and three quarters of an inch, something like that. And they were originally painted white, but scuffed, so mm-hmm. you could see the wood blushing through, which was so beautiful. Yeah. And they uh, showed it incised in the wall with its own light, just oh, like nice. that. Oh, nice. And that I saw 20 years before I did my idea. See, Malevich is kind of in all of our work in one way or oh, another. Oh, he's amazing. It's like Warhol. Yeah. It's like those the few people who ruined it or Duchamp who ruined it for everyone. Really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did well, you want did to? They? No, because they didn't ruin it. Oh no, that's a joke. They, they oh, opened I know, the door. No, because what was so what so you know when people say every idea has already been done, it's very annoying to me because 
the uh, zeitgeist of each time and our technology changes yeah. and we're different and the world's different context yeah. so everything is going to be different how could it be the same how could every idea be used up especially we're working on going to mars how could this be yeah it's kind of all different in all the in a way there's a precedent there's some yes but it's also very different definitely you have to say the internet is very different and what we can yeah, do it with is. it is very different Extremely. It's a different game, whole game. Did you want to, speaking of Duchamp, did you want to talk a little bit about that movie? The movie. That you were in? Oh, yes. I forgot what I said <laughs> about does. Duchamp. Well, oh, but I'll tell you this. The movie was great. I was oh, yes. able to see the, the movie. The and Possibilities it was great. of Art, right? Yeah. Uh, by Michael Taylor. And yeah, wonderful. And this is who introduced me to you, Brian. Yeah. Uh, what I was beginning to think about Duchamp after uh, my allegiance shifted to Cage, and the reason was not that I would discount him, and he's you know ever present and will always, as I said, influence every generation yeah, of artists. Yeah, totally. Uh, but his focus is puerile in many respects. Mm-hmm. The the uh, donné, you know, just a peekaboo, yeah, and demeaning to women. And uh, you know we're looking right at her. Well, in the in the chess, the him playing chess with, with the Nego. I mean, woman that's with the big gazongas. Oops. Y- yeah, that's, that that was a little patri- wrong of me to say. Well, I mean, it's a but little. But that was the whole point of it. Yeah. And no, so that and then the OA gas, you know, uh, uh, you know, gas. Yeah. And uh, so, and and he. Cage, as I be, when you're talking about Ankara and, and the spiritual aspect of things, Zen, but Cage had a spiritual aspect to his work. He mm-hmm. wanted to be a minister when he was growing up. At one point, he thought he would be, and there's an evangelical aspect to his all of his work because he felt that chance was the only way for us to escape our limited egos. Right, and uh, so. I think that that idea of art and the spirit, as he, you know, talked about, uh, continues and may, is a deeper, more profound focus. And it'll be interesting to have that conversation with someone uh, who's much more versed in Duchamp than I am. Right. Uh, although I've kind of lived with it. We, uh, Bill and I uh, were... Tini Duchamp was like a grandmother, and we stayed with her ho- at her house in in uh, Sugre mm-hmm. uh, for different weeks at a time, at different periods, a couple of weeks at a time. And we stayed in the room where there was, uh, the, the, well, just outside of it was the chair, the tall chair that he's often photographed in, in yeah. sitting in. And there was uh, the uh, one eye to be looked at a kind of a, a part of it a, a, a half you know a hemisphere yeah and um, uh, various pieces the Lalans in our room there was the Lalans uh, hippopotamus bathtub which was amazing so the mouth opens and that's the sink <laughs> and then you open up the back and the belly you take the bath in the belly so it was a great uh, place to be yeah I'm sure uh so Duchamp, and we walked with Tini a lot. And we have right here uh, a copy of the uh, rotor reliefs. 
Oh, really? And on top of it, it says $11.80 <laughs> written in pencil. So it was obviously for sale in this country. Yeah. I know he tried to sell it in Paris. Right. You know, at a internet, what was it, an industrial fair. Right. But that would have been francs, not... And what he said, so here's an influence of, of certainly of Duchamp. Uh, what what uh, Duchamp had said to Brancusi when they were at this industrial fair and they saw uh, a uh, propeller, mm-hmm. a bronze propeller. And Duchamp said, tell me, have any of us done anything as good as that? And uh, I thought when I was uh, going to the Met, I always, as I said, lived not far from there. Right. Um, and we would go often. Uh, I saw the uh, fire uh, hoses mm-hmm. that are embedded in case. I'm fascinated by things encased in the wall. Clearly that uh, Malevich piece, and here I have a similar presentation. Uh, so there's chicken wire, reinforced glass, and then a fire hose. And then uh, it's on... Uh, there are dozens of them in the museum. But I picked in 1976 one because I happened to be waiting in line to go to Tutankhamun. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where people gathered. It's on the Grand Mezzanine northwest corner. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are three others because it's a four-sided uh, balustrade there all right. the way around. And there happened to be three others, you know, mirroring the other side. Yeah. So... In my claim, uh, I put a label next to it on the stone wall, and it was taken down. And since I lived in town, I would, whenever I'd visit the Met, I'd come armed with put a label. <laughs> well, one day, two, two, two years later, uh, my label was up. But this time, the case was opened and it was put inside. So I thought, oh, someone's complicit, you know, in the museum. And uh, so I was emboldened, and I made a postcard of it. And printed a thousand at my own expense. Traded art for it, but printed a thousand. And then slipped them in the 20th century rack amongst my peers and bought two right away. <laughs> 28 cents each back then. Yeah. And uh, they sold them to me. Over time, they I would stock the cards and reassert my label. And uh, of course, they knew they did inventory, they knew it was no longer. You know, they're the first day, maybe right. they didn't know, but they knew eventually that it was not theirs. And they uh, uh, continued to sell them to all kinds of people. So, for instance, Ray Johnson bought one. Oh, that's the, cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, of course. Uh, correspondence artist. Yeah. We knew him. We never met him, but he, we talked on the phone. He turns out he was very well off, and he could spend hours on the phone when we used to have to pay long distance oh, calls. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those days. Yeah, <laughs> and he would talk for for even two hours. Wow. And yeah, he was convinced that under the Etendonne there was a whole bunch of books, and he wanted to get permission to excavate under there. What was what were the bricks and books that were used to pile it up to stack right. it up? And anyway, all kinds of, his mind wandered all over. But what he said was, uh, what he did with my card was great. He did a triple pun, Mm -hmm. triple pun. So he peeled it halfway back and he wrote, 
appealing. It's literally appealing. <laughs> right. Appealing that it's appealing. And then a P, male member, peeling. Right. So there's this triple pun. How clever is that? Yeah. And uh, so he sent it to me. And because uh, I sent him a card, of course. Right. Then uh, a, a Solowit uh, bought one. It turns out he knew me, so he wrote back. And he obliterated what it, it, it was uh, the Met 12 years after I did my gorilla card. They produced an official card. They acquired the photograph from which that gorilla card was made, and then they produced it. So and they, they created their own, 10, basically. Yeah. yeah. And they featured it in not just the store, but in concessions. There are two places where concessions are in the mm-hmm. museum. One was at the top of the grand staircase, right. and another was in the American wing, where that, is it Chase Bank or one of the Federal Bank? Anyway, you know, the face yeah. facade of the right, bank. Right, right. there is a concession. Uh-huh. So they put, they don't put every card there, just some. Yeah. And uh, so I was very flattered. It's pretty cool, there. yeah. And so they sold out. And uh, so uh, Saul uh, wrote on this text that tells the story. They even let me read the copy and correct it. Mm-hmm. So they said surreptitiously, and then I just changed the word to quietly placed. <laughs> a little more elegant. Right. Um, and, and so then... Um, uh, also, the uh, buyer uh, designer for the Saks Fifth Avenue bought one, and blew it up four feet, life size, and uh, colored it a la Warhol. And he put it in the banks by the elevator shaft. Mm-hmm. You know, the elevator. Yeah. Uh, when you so there's seven floors. So it was on seven floors as a design theme throughout the store. And I was not told. I was going to say, did that? Did they run oh, that? No, by? I ripped the Met off, but he ripped me off. You yeah. know? And uh, so I wrote a letter th- with a copyright li- lawyer and said, you know, I'd like to have a, a very modest one hundred dollar, how modest, uh, gift certif- certificate to the store, which they gave me. Right. Well, that was and nice. then later, I wanted to collect uh, the. Um, you know, uh, one of those posters. Yeah. They were all snapped up. Really? Everybody took them. So many years later, I made my own color. Now with Photoshop, I could go to town. I did yeah. much better ones, I thought. You right. know, they were <laughs> really fun. And plus, I was doing them, not this designer fellow. Yeah. And so then I had the idea, still not done. I'm throwing out a bunch of ideas. Maybe we'll get some takers. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, from tattoo artist to uh, <laughs> Tiffany's or some other fancy shop right. to this. I want to make art, artisanal beer, uh, fire hose beer. And I would use my label on there. And at one time, I did fill the beer bottles with urine. Mm-hmm. Because what else happens when you drink beer? you got to get rid of it. <laughs> so I had these beer bottles. My dealer didn't want to show them, and uh, which was too bad. I had a six-pack, you know, of this. And I wanted to have one of these, you know, the room could be dark. Right. And then they could glow bright yellow. Nice. You know, like kryptonite or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, so uh, that is yet to be done. But real firehose beer, I talked to a brewery in... Uh, in uh, we didn't get very far. We, he got very excited, and then it 
dropped away. Mm -hmm. But I said, could we invent something, you know, like a smoky flavor that was hot, you know, to the taste? See, this is going to, this is another weird kind of uh, connection, but my, in that, in the band. Do you know somebody? Yes. In the band, which was a three-piece that I told you about, 33.3, our second record, we had two more people join in. Uh One guy played upright bass, and one guy played trumpet, trombone, and pedal steel. That guy owns a brewery in Brooklyn that is one of the top kind of independent brewers in the country. Yeah, I just did for my last show at Miles McHenry Gallery. He did a custom beer. They did a beer. Yeah, he did a beer, and then the label was my artwork that was based on the show that I had. Oh, so you did this? Yeah, so I'll. But maybe we could do my firehouse. So this is what I want to do. I'm very ambitious here. Okay. But the Met owes it to me. (laughs) (laughs) The Met owes me one. (laughs) They owe me one. I'm in the collection, but now we need a room where my work is up. Yeah. And they still have not. They acquired, 37 years later, 2007, the uh, fire hose as a work of art. I sold the concept of it to a collector. First, the collector wanted to uh, donate, you know, uh, the money to the Met, and they would buy the work. Yeah. Uh, but you cannot earmark. Pat, that would bypass curators. You right. give them money and then they buy it. Yeah. So I said, no, you have to buy it and then let's see if they accept it. Yeah. And um, her husband actually was um, CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue. And anyway, so she uh, bought it for $18,000. I sold her the right to call the fire hose a work of art and I made a label for it, which is here. And uh, so then I wrote my own text label about how uh, the major shift in the 60s was from the uh, artwork to the site itself, Mm -hmm. you know, as a shift. And so the difference between uh, uh, Duchamp's uh, found object was that mine was claimed object. It was already in a museum. Right. And uh, so I went to the fire department and I asked them, it would a label, a permanent label next to that bother them in any way. They said they, the, the commando, you know, of the 85th Street uh, precinct mm-hmm. said, absolutely not. You know, he laughed. Yeah. He burst out laughing. <laughs> and in the now 42 years since I've done this, am I right with my math? 76, wait a minute, 44? 76, 4, wait, 80, uh, where am 44. I? Yeah, 44. So in the 44 years since I did that, they have painted the fire hose uh, cabinet mm-hmm. uh, three times. First, it was a not-so-attractive flesh color, and uh, then a dark gray, and now a light gray, and I have a brand-new spanking white hose instead of that old nicotine-stained yeah. thing that was there <laughs> before that you've all seen these orange hoses. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I... Also said that should there be a fire, I'm not going to start one, but I would claim it as my performance because the title changed to performance. Right. So that included all the uh, acquisition committees where they kicked it down the road because it was offered in a couple of years before and it took them two years to finally uh, deliberate to ex- and, then, and then accept the piece. Yeah. So they accepted it as a work of art. 
But Philippe de Montebello wrote a, a letter saying that he reserved the right not to keep the label up all the time. Well, Metropolitan Museum, they haven't even kept it up once. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're supposed to print their own label and identify it as a work of art and put the text that I wrote, the caption that I wrote uh, for it. Well, it'll happen, right? Maybe. But then what I would like to do is have a room. In, 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 you know, there's a, the photography wing uh, on the uh, second floor. Go left as you get up the ground mezzanine. And then you go into the sculpture court. And sometimes they cut two rooms or one space. Is it one or I can't remember if it's just one. It might be one horizontal space. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they've cut it in two, I've seen. And uh, anyway, it can be entered from the sculpture court separate from the, all the photography. Yeah. That would make an ad- ideal room. What I'd like to do in it is to have a large uh, life-size prints of my colorful, Warholized, colored uh, fire hose, lab- you know, the image of the fire hose. Yeah. And uh, on, printed on aluminum. So they have some luminosity to right. them, the way that printing can look. And uh, the Firehouse book that I did, that Carl Andres, when I told him this whole long saga, he said, oh, you've got to write a book. And I did, a tiny book. Mm -hmm. So the book, uh, which the Met has a copy, and uh, then uh, the postcard, my gorilla card, and then their official card. Mm -hmm. And then for the opening, we could serve the Firehouse beer. It's all coming together. Yeah, I've got it for them. And we could show my urine beer, you know, Sure. It's a museum, why not? Goes right along with it. You know, it was funny. We started the podcast and speaking about your mother. That's better late than never. Yeah. So I think it applies here, too. Yeah, so here are a bunch of ideas that I have since New York is my town. Yeah. And uh, born on this island, you know, it's taking a while, but I am making inroads. I think you are. I mean, you've done so so many things. It's really, really impressive. Oh, uh, thank a, you. This is a full full roster of accomplishments. And yeah, then so yeah. many different... I told you, it's when you areas. run out of ideas. Here's something that's funny, that mm-hmm. takes a long time. So, for instance, I've been uh, doing cubes of uh, limestone and setting with gravity on top a copper cube or a prism. Mm-hmm. So I did that for, I think, 20 years. <laughs> and then... One day I was looking, I just bought a pyrite crystal. You see that crystal there? Yeah. It's, the cube is embedded. Mm-hmm. Well, it only took me 20 years, and I didn't even have the idea myself. Nature did to embed the damn thing. Right. See, sometimes one is so slow. It's funny, huh? Yeah, but it feels good when you have that, that yeah. moment, you know? Yes, yeah, and do it. It's kind of like a moment of clarity where things... Yeah. Speaking of that, this is my favorite. uh, It's Hakoin, 1585 to 16-something. I'm not sure of his dates. But Hakoin was a Japanese poet. And so he has uh, a description of art making that uh, is four words. So it's simplicity, clarity, spontaneity, precision. Isn't that beautiful? It is. You know? Simplicity, clarity, spontaneity, precision. Because you have spontaneity but precision. How how zen, how perfect. It seems to cover everything. 
And when I did those salt mounds that I drop water on, yeah. you know, it's a very simple idea. And then I have it water, water dropping on stone, so it's for a slow change and for a fast, because I wanted to make sculptures that would change shape mm-hmm. and very slow and a very fast change. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, Hakuin was my man. I'm, it's very poetic. I'm a, a big fan. I mean, I, I did a show in Japan called In Praise of Shadows. It was sort of heavily... Oh, what did, was it called? In Praise of Shadows. In Praise of Shadows. Beautiful. Tanazaki. It's, a, it's after the Tanazaki book about okay. um, the appreciation of the kind of the unseen or, or the, you know, the unnoticed and the quiet yes, moments, yes. which I think is a big part which of it. Which is what we're all doing. Yeah. As artists. Yeah, right? essentially. Yeah. We're, we're so what did you do in the show? Uh, they were images of, I spent a, a lot of time there taking um, photos and traveling around doing a project for the bullet train there. So it was, oh. it was all images from my travels, basically. Uh-huh. Paintings. Oh, paintings. Yes. So you actually painted them all? Yes. Oh, wow. There? No, I did them back here. Yeah, because that would take a while. Yeah. I, I did a show. I've, I my, showed in Japan yeah. in a miniatures gallery. You know, they're tiny there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was just a little cube. I don't know. Yeah, there's not a lot of big big spaces there. 15 feet square or something. Mm -hmm. Was it in Tokyo? In Tokyo. Yeah. On a motosando there, Fifth Avenue. Yeah. That's a great... Gallery 360 degrees. Oh, nice. Yeah, it it was amazing. And I also did a a Gwangju Biennale. In Korea. I never heard of them, so I made them do all the work. I was very arrogant. (laughs) <laughs> when they called up, I said, oh, well, if you make the glass droppers and uh, or the clasps and, you know, right. I'll provide the salt. So what it was is then oh, the salt mound developed into a piece where I got salt from each of the continents. Mm-hmm. So I, I maintain that there are six, not seven, because of racism, because right. Eurasia is one. Mm-hmm. If you if you say that a continent is a large body of land surrounded by water, Eurasia is just one. Right. Just the Urals separate. Yeah. And it's racism why we call it two. Yeah, that's true. So uh, when I did a show in the Marine, the former Maritime Retirement Home in uh, Staten Island, Mm -hmm. it's now an arts center. Can't think of the name. Anyway, as you take the ferry over, there's uh, piles of salt that were... Revealed, and there were several different colors of these salts green, pink, mm-hmm. white. And um, so I was fascinated. And after I did my installation of salt, <clears throat> where Anastasi, Bill, did uh, in our room, I had a white salt mound with water dropping on it. And he had kitty corner in the same space, uh, one gallon high gloss enamel poured from the just below the ceiling down to the floor, and it had a pool of black oil on the floor it was beautiful simple room you know right and it was a buddhist show something about buddhism the title Mm -hmm. and uh anyway as we took the ferry i saw the salt so i went to visit and it took me two years to collect salt from each of the continents because salt is shipped from all over the world at the least expensive rate right and it comes in to the hull of a ship and is backhoed out you know they just put it uh, not even in containers Mm -hmm. and i guess it's lined from the salt and the steel but you know yeah uh we're talking about vast amounts of salt and uh so it took a while but the fellow collected for me 
from <clears throat> Africa, I got from Egypt gray salt. From uh, Eurasia, at that time, I got brown salt from Ireland. Uh, from uh, Dominican Republic, which I chose for North America, mm-hmm. I got uh, green salt, which is uh, polluted by copper. Each one is a pollution. Yeah. And then from South America, uh, oh, what country was it? Uh, Brazil? I got pink salt. Argentinian. Peru? No. Curacao. <laughs> no. Uruguay. I have all these gaps, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Somewhere in, in South there. America. Yeah. I, don't think it was, I went to Brazil, but uh, I showed salt mound there. But um, there's a black, maybe it was Brazil? Was it? No, it wasn't Brazil, but uh, it was a, there's a black uh, salt crystal cathedral mm-hmm. in this country. Anyway, I got pink salt from there because that's where polluted by copper. And so I had pink, green, gray, brown, white, and ivory. Sounds beautiful. And the yeah. ivory I got in Guangzhou. So, you know, when I showed it in North America, I got I got it from, uh, where did I get the other one? Uh, well, I got from Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a, a national arts and science. So this is how I would work. So I wrote them, you know, and I only wrote a page, how long, you know, a paragraph. It wasn't even very much to describe the work. Yeah. And maybe they thought it was too short or too flip. And uh, I didn't get the grant. So I traveled down to Washington, went to the Arts and Science uh, Foundation, and said, you don't understand. I have to have our Antarctic salt. You have to get me. You know the salt because I'm doing this piece, and I brought my book and my all my armature. You know, dressed up. You know yeah. that doesn't hurt. And then uh, uh, they gave me uh, a grant to get salt from Antarctica. They got scientists who would gather the salt because everywhere there is land, there's salt. It's amazing. I just picture a bunch of guys in like, you know, these winter like desalinating water yeah just out like cultivating salt and one guy's like what are you doing it's like oh it's for an art piece yeah in korea and then they shipped it to san diego (laughs) you know yeah and then it came cross country to new york that's amazing and then it went to all the way to uh korea korea north uh, south korea and uh so there i did my uh salts it's pretty cool yeah i did it three times philadelphia uh California, uh, L.A. in a gallery, uh, and then out there. It's an amazing piece. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, it was really uh, beautiful to see the different colors. Yeah, I'm know? sure. Well, um, well, how can people who may not be familiar with your work? I'm sure everyone is, but or no, how, how can people hardly. find out more about you they know? They could go to my website. Your website. We've been best. talking a long time. Are you going to broadcast all this? I don't edit anything. Yeah, we're letting it fly. Oh wow. <laughs> People are getting two hours of dough. This is for insomniacs. <laughs> well, I mean... Okay, it, so if you uh, want to go to DoveBradshaw.com, you can see everything we're describing. Right. Here's another body of work that, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, I, I did. Uh, I lived on, near the Hudson on Riverside. Yeah. Uh, uh, draw, you know, there's a Hudson uh, River Park. And um, 
there are these honey locust trees I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And every spring they uh, spurt with a lot of growth. It can even be feet, grows in feet, you know, several feet in a season. And these um, thorns uh, spring out in a burl. Mm -hmm. And so I brought shears, clippers, and I uh, upended a... Uh, waste paper basket, one of those metal baskets, stand on top and then clip away. I had to do it barehanded uh, because gloves are too clumsy. And um, so, yes, blood is drawn. Mm-hmm. But I built them into a nest. I called it home. And eventually, every time I've shown it, it's grown because mm-hmm. I've added to the. So it started maybe knee high and then it's over my head. I showed it in Amsterdam. Just like coiled. Sort of Co- built you know, like I a nest. I built a bird's nest, yeah. but inverted, more like a swallow's nest, where it's narrow at the top and then widens when you get in. Right. And so it was called home. And uh, happy childhood there, right? Yeah. No, uh, my childhood wasn't bad. It went, <laughs> it went bad as I got a teenager, somewhat, but it wasn't. It was great, and you know, full of fun and freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. Uh, these thorns, I've cast them in gold. I've called it life with Bill. There was an early, you know, comment. Yeah. Besides the devil. <laughs> Prickly piece. And, uh, yeah, golden thorn. And then uh, in this uh, photogravure uh-huh. uh, I did of it. And uh, the film piece here, which is a dancer's arm. It was one of Merce's dancers. I looked, I had great chance to study their arms yeah. over the years of working. And there was one with a very lovely arm. And you can tell it's a dancer because the wrist is limp. It has all that structure and then the wrist hangs low. Yeah. You know? And ballet. Mm-hmm. You know? That's what you're taught. Like, right. be really tight and then... Let it fly some, at the end. <laughs> yes. Let it fly at the end. Exactly. So, uh, anyway, so those are some of the thorn uh, works that I had done. I did a thorn earring. But mm-hmm. that I had to do... In rubber. Yeah, you don't want to be liable, causing yeah. injury. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would like to, uh, the Lalans did a thorn necklace, but I'm still working on my own thorn necklace. One day I'll do my own because mine mine's going to be much spikier. I'm going to be much more wild. That'll be cool. I'm not going to worry about piercings. It's very punk. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. This is pretty cool. Well, thanks so much for having me over today. Yeah. It's been oh, great. It's great. And, um, your website is your name, right? Yeah, just my name. And um, Dove Bradshaw. If I was a, the formal name is Catherine Loveday Bradshaw. And if the art world had three names, if I had been, there are some three named artists using their middle names too. Yeah. But uh, Catherine Loveday would be great for a, a writer. Catherine Loveday. Bradshaw. It's really not. Yeah, it's poetic. Yeah, it's po- It's in our family for few centuries yeah well how did uh dove come about um mispronunciation by my older brother <laughs> so instead of being called love day as though that would be hard yeah to live with love day dove. get a lot of beef about that but um he mispronounced it to dove d and then dove short and there it came it's nice yeah it's original it's unique. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. unique for sure although some people say is that a hippie name <laughs> I wasn't. I got to California, folks, uh, after the hippies cut their hair, so I guess it doesn't count. Right. <laughs> it's past that time. It was, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, um, I, I feel like we could probably do another one of these and talk for a couple more hours. Uh, this is fun. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I've well, enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Yeah. It's great talking. You too. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com or see more images on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or at Alfred Studio on Instagram. You can support the podcast by going over to iTunes and rating and reviewing. You can also go to the website and become a Patreon patron. Many thanks to Evan Marion for the music you're hearing now and the intro music, Michael Lovett for the introduction, Emily Burns for graphic design, and for Dove Bradshaw for speaking with me. Make sure to check out that new movie. It's called Marcel Duchamp, The Art of the Possible, and it is coming out on March 10th. It was written and directed by Matthew Taylor and produced by Michelle Taylor. And it stars artists from Jeff Koons to Marina Ambravinish to Joseph Kosuth, Calvin Tompkins, Ed Ruscha, Michelle Gondry, Paul Matisse, Thierry Dedouve, and many others. It's a compelling movie, so check it out. And also thanks to Golden Artist Colors and the New York Studio School for their sponsorship of the podcast. And thanks to you, all the listeners. 